0: Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news, but I need your help. I was nominated for a Webby Award, which for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for more than two years might remember I was nominated for two years ago and tried desperately to win the People's Choice Award then, which I didn't. Um, But at that time, I was like going to the guy at Joe and the Juice behind the counter asking him to vote for me and anyone I could. So now I'm coming to all of you to ask you to please vote for Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to win the People's Choice Webby Award for Best Live Podcast. If you go to vote.webbyawards.com, again, that's vote.webby, W-E-B-B-Y, webbyawards.com, and then go to the little magnifying glass search thing on the upper right, All you have to type in is search my name or entry and just type in moms and it will come up. And then you can click on the best live podcast recording nominee and vote for me. Also, by the way, I won honoree for best influencer, which is crazy. Anyway, thank you for voting. I really, really would appreciate it. I would love to win the People's Voice Award, especially after trying so hard and failing two years ago. So if you could just take a few minutes and vote, I would be so grateful. You could email me after if you want, at info at zibbyowens.com, and I will say thank you to you via email myself because I'm so grateful. So email me if you've done it, um, post about it. Um, I'm just – I would be so grateful. Thank you. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight – So this is a recording of the live event I did with Christy Woods and Harvey and Left Bank Books, the largest independent bookstore in St. Louis. And I have to say, my contribution to this leading up to it was sort of a nightmare because I had decided to go to this random hotel with my husband, Kyle, and we thought it would be fun. But when we got there, there was no Wi-Fi in the room or it kept freezing. And so I had to like cart my laptop all around the hotel, which was ended up being a terrible hotel. And my the walk to my room was like 15 minutes long. And it was just like one of those awful situations. So with no time to spare, I ended up in this like abandoned disgusting event space room with upside down chairs on every table and men kind of coming in and out the whole time, like flopping a chair or grabbing a cart or something crazy. Anyway, I was definitely crying up until the second that this started. So I rallied because I love Christy Woodson Harvey and did the event. We ended up having a blast, but just that was the preamble to what actually happened. Here's a little bio about Christy and it may show you part of why I love her so much, but honestly, I am obsessed with this book Under the Southern Sky and it is Really, really fantastic. So I was honored to talk to her about it. Anyway, here's her bio. Christy Woodson Harvey is the USA Today best-selling author of Feels Like Falling, The Southern Side of Paradise, The Secret to Southern Charm, Slightly South of Simple, Lies and Other Acts of Love, Dear Carolina, and The Forthcoming Under the Southern Sky, which has now arrived. Christy is the winner of the Lucy Bramlett Patterson Award for Excellence in Creative Writing, a finalist for the Southern Book Prize. And her work has been optioned for film and has gotten so many accolades, including including Southern Living's Most Anticipated Beach Reads, Southern Living's Best Spring Break Reads, Southern Independent Bookseller Association's Okra Pick, Parades, Big Fiction Reads Every Book Club Will Love. It just goes on and on. Entertainment Weekly, Us Weekly, Women's World, Pop Sugar, USA Today, Deep South Magazine, Raleigh News, Charlotte Observer, HuffPost. She also blogged with her mom, Beth Woodson, on Design Chic about how creating a beautiful home can be the catalyst for creating a beautiful life. And by the way, she is a Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude graduate of University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Journalism with a master's in English from East Carolina University, and her publication, her writing has been in everywhere from Domino, Parade, Today.com, Washington Post, Marie Claire, everywhere. And she's a member of the Tall Poppy Writers. She also serves on the board of the Beaufort Historical Association and is a member of the UNC Women's Leadership Council, and she's always working on another novel. So enjoy this episode. Christy, congratulations on your publication. This is so exciting. Well, thank you. you and still thank you still get excited all after your... so many books?
2: Oh my gosh. Yes, it is. I think it's like a new baby, I guess. You know, it's like, oh, like you love it. You're so excited for it to be in the world. And yes, I'm thrilled. And it's been so <laughs> fun to, get to be back on tour. And um, I've been doing a few in-person events. So that's felt kind of weird and great. All at the same time. And so, yes, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. No, I saw on Instagram how you were actually with real people at a book, at book events. And I was like, that's amazing. I'm so excited that the world is coming back. So, I know. Me too. Me too. It's great. <laughs> and by the way, when I was listening to your bio, I think it's a disservice to call you a great Southern writer. I mean, you are a great writer, full stop period. Like that's you. It, it's not only in a region, like you, have your the way you tell stories is so beautiful and the stories themselves and the characters. So anyway, I think you need to, you know, I don't know. Shift the bio you, or something.
2: Thank you. Yes, like get a new get some new
0: quotes. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I love the quote. I don't know. I I, I really loved this book, and it was so thought provoking. And what? How did you come up with the idea for for this novel?
2: So it kind of like a lot of things, it came to me in stages. But the real spark for this story was a few years ago. It was maybe. It was probably five years ago, because it was right after my first book, Dear Carolina had just come out. And I was at a party and a friend and I were talking. And she said, you know, I was at the doctor today. And we just found out that we have to decide what to do with our leftover frozen embryos. And she said, you know, I just never expected this. It wasn't something we were thinking about. All we were thinking about was, you know, this family and these children that we really wanted. And I think You know, before they had their first baby, they thought, well, you know, we might have all of these embryos, you know, we might use all of them, like you just don't really know. But then they ended up not doing that. And they were just having a hard time deciding what to do. And she said, you really should write a book about this, because a lot of people are going to be going through this. And I was like, yes. Yes, I should. Um, and it was one of those things that I knew just right away was going to be something that I was going to want to write a story about at some point. But it wasn't until a few years later that To Lies and Other Acts of Love was about to come out. The Peach Tree Bluff series then came out. And of course, that was three books. So that took several years. And then Feels Like Falling. And I, I knew I, I was almost kind of like holding my breath because I thought, if I don't come up with a story about this topic like somebody else, this specific thing that somebody else is going to, because I knew I really wanted to write about a man who had lost his wife and had to decide what to do with his leftover frozen embryos. So I was, I was really holding my breath. And so I was pretty excited. I mean, I don't think there's been another book about it, but maybe there has, but at any rate, I'm excited it's out and it's felt very timely right now.
0: It's so timely. I, when I sent you the article for the New York times a few days ago about abandoned embryos, you posted that like five other people had sent it to you. I mean, it's like literally right now, this is top of the news.
2: It it was unbelievable. No, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh. And like all these people were sharing it with me. And yeah, it was crazy that something so similar was in the New York times, like just, you know, two days before the book was coming out. And Sometimes I think, you know, those are like the little nudges, like whispers we get from the universe, like, okay, you're on the right track. Like this was the right time. And I really felt like there were a lot of those things throughout this process. Like, you know, one of the major things in the story is that there's an investigative journalist that is friends. One of her childhood friends is, is the father of these embryos. And she sort of accidentally discovers that his embryos have been deemed abandoned. And so part of the inspiration for that was, a big story in the New York Times while i was writing this book about abandoned embryos and how you know their fate is kind of up in the air and and what ethically can you know doctors offices do with them because no one's paying for their storage but are they life are they not life can you adopt them out like what do you do with these embryos so I think there's just, there's been so much going on with this for the past few years anyway. And then I think we're going to start to see a lot more. So it's, it's, it's an interesting topic for sure. I could have written 10 books about it, honestly.
0: I bet. (laughs) And I love the way you structured it, how you alternated who was telling the story when you would have Parker, then you would hear from the the leftover diaries of Greer, who's his wife who had passed away from Amelia, from Amelia's mom, from the moms. I mean, it was so great to get everybody's point of view. And of course, everybody has different points of view on this particular issue, but then just, you know, life in general and how they deal with the loss and in their life, in their small circle. How did you decide to, to structure it this way? Particularly, I would say Greer and how you got her voice into it, even though she had, been passed away when when the novel begins.
2: I was really nervous about that, to be completely mm-hmm. honest with you. It was not something that I really originally planned on doing. I thought, you know, we're gonna have Parker and Amelia. I hadn't actually planned on having Greer or Elizabeth. And then as the story progressed, and for people who have read the book, Elizabeth, who is Amelia's mother, actually her POV does not come onto the page until like 80 pages in. But I started to realize that something was going to unfold in this story and we couldn't see it from Amelia's point of view and we couldn't see it from Parker's point of view. So we had to have somebody else in the story. And for Greer, I actually really just kind of played around with it. I was not sold on the fact that Greer was going to appear in this story And I wrote a few of her journal entries at the beginning. And normally I don't let anyone read a book until I'm completely finished with a draft. But I actually sent the first like maybe seven or eight chapters to my agent and said, is this going to work? You know, do you think it's too hokey to have her journal entries? And she said she wrote back and said, "No, absolutely not. I think we need her and i the the first journal entry that I wrote was the one where she's actually like saying goodbye to her embryos, and I think it would have been a different story if we hadn't had that scene and I think it would have been a harder sell on why Parker feels so connected to these embryos if he had not seen how connected you know this woman
0: that he loves so much felt to them so yeah, but it was it was a risk, and that it was, was- <laughs> no, I. It was a. It was. It worked. It totally worked, and I loved how, even in the book, you had other people then go read the same thing again. It was like <laughs> kind of meta, right? Like she had the diary, you published it, other people read it, and then you continued to sway the reader and all the characters over and over with why it was so essential to try this, which was genius. I loved that.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it, it is something that I do think is contentious. And that was one of my main qualms about writing this story is that, you know, it's one of those issues where half the people that pick up a book about what people do with their leftover frozen embryos don't really care and i mean i don't mean that in like a flip way but depending on how you feel about that issue you just think who cares get rid of them but going back to that new york times article it was so interesting and i think the thing that really struck me about that article was how the parents of those embryos they were their children like they weren't born but they were their children and that's how i think people feel about it and if you haven't been through that situation. I think it's hard for you to kind of understand that and like really feel that. And so I wanted readers to kind of feel how connected they felt to these embryos, even though, you know, as Greer says, all the life that will never be, because that's kind of what they were to
0: her. Oh, wow. And even the ripple effects across generations, which you point out with the character of Rear's dad. So it's not just what the husband necessarily wants, but what about the family of the woman who has passed away? Or like, what about that and having to deal with another layer? Like that could have gone any direction, you know, like the father could have been happy or sad or angry or litigious or whatever. I just think there's, it's so unclear what you're supposed to do.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And that's such a good point that you bring up because that's happening in real life. I mean, I have friends who have frozen embryos and like they have wills written so that like, if they die, like their sister has to approve what their husband does. I mean, this stuff goes very, very deep, but I think it also speaks to the fact that even five and six years ago, when my friend and I were talking about this, Yes, lots of people were doing IVF, and this was a very, you know, kind of normal way to have a baby at that point. But I don't think people were quite as up to speed on like, oh, wait, we have to figure out what we're going to do after. And oh, like, what if I die and I leave these embryos? Or what if we get divorced? And who gets the embryos? And there's a big court case going on right now with like a couple who, you know, he it's in their will that, you know, one of the members of the couple gets the embryos, but then the other one changed his mind and and they're splitting up and they're in court over who gets the embryo. I mean, you know, it is, it's just very interesting to me. Like I said, I could have written 10 books about it. So it was really hard to decide like, okay, this is the story that I'm going to write.
0: And that's still only one piece. I mean, it's sort of the guiding principle of the story, but there's yeah. a whole nother piece of, you know, the, so you have the embryos and everything, but then you have the relationship between Parker and Amelia and how they feel about each other. And you have the loss, right? You wrote so beautifully about that feeling of grief that, I mean, uh, Parker sitting in his shower and like all these scenes, I mean, and the times where the grief sort of wells up when he wasn't expecting it, which I think is so, that's such a part of it too, right? He's like, wow, I, you know, today it really knocked me off my feet, whereas the other day he felt better. And I mean, tell me about how you're so tapped into grief. And I know from your essay in my upcoming anthology about your grandfather passing away, oh, but yes. tell me a little bit. I, I mean, right. I mean, that was such yeah. a sweet essay. Oh my gosh.
2: Thank oh my you. Gosh. I'm so excited about um, the anthology. I cannot wait for that. You know, okay. So this is going to sound really weird and it's, I actually forgot about it until you just said this right now. <laughs> I was actually in the shower and I just got this like, swamped feeling of like being this other person who was like, grieving this really big loss. Like it, it was very bizarre. I don't even really know how to explain it. But I remember like being like, Oh, this is really weird. There's like some part of a story in this. It was almost like I sort of felt it. But there was definitely a lot of like loss going on in my life. At that time, I had lost a really good friend very unexpectedly. And I was very like deeply sad about it. Like more than you know, you know how you, you have, you have all those sort of layers of grief where you're, you know, you're sad and you're crying and you're at the funeral and whatever, but then the kind of like, you just sort of can't, move past it sort of thing. So that was definitely going on. And my mother-in-law had just passed away after a really long illness, but it was very complicated because we were like evacuating for a hurricane and calling in hospice and trying to figure out what to do. And our house got destroyed in a hurricane. It was like all at the same time. And honestly, like, I think I handled it all really well. (laughs) If I'm being honest, I really do. I never kind of like just fell apart at the seams. I was like, okay, we're just we're problem solving here. And so I think in some ways, just like the, the loss and like the grief of all of that kind of went into this story. It was just like, it was the way that I was like expressing what I was feeling, but I would not have told you that at the time. I didn't really actively realize that's what was happening until, like, honestly, kind of now. Like, as I've started talking about this book, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. Like, I'm writing about this house, like, crumbling at the seams. And, like, my house is, like, you know, half gone. And, you know, I'm writing about these people, losing people who are close to them and how that feels. And I've lost these people that are close to me. So I think, you know, in retrospect, it's certainly not the same thing. I mean, losing a spouse would just be so monstrous you know but i think it gave me enough to be able to kind of really put myself in the position of what that
0: would feel like well, i'm so sorry about your losses and thank you for sharing them i think that's the thing about grief like i feel like therapists should just like pick up someone's novel and like be like all right <laughs> here are all the things that are probably going on with you that maybe you're not aware of but they come out in fiction or they come out in like these scenes because after a while your consciousness you know you're wrestling with it and for so long it has to seep out you know it's like i don't know like a sponge or i don't know the good analogy but no anyway it's so interesting. Right. So right.
2: and i and i think it is it it's like my therapy i mean whatever is happening i'm somehow putting it into these pages and then you know that's where i go like that's where my escape is and like my outlet and i mean even during covid i mean oh, i wrote so many books during COVID, because I was just like, and they they weren't about COVID. They weren't even negative. I mean, I wrote this really fun, happy Christmas book like during COVID. But it was because like, that's what I wished I was doing right then. You know, I wrote that instead of focusing on all the things we weren't doing. So I think there's there's definitely some therapy happening on those pages for sure. <laughs> luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style
0: i mean i think that's the great thing about reading and writing it's that even if you're not if even if you're happy with where you are, the fact that you can just like toggle and enter Palm Beach looking at the intercoastal and then you're sitting on a beautiful porch and you're, I mean, all these ways you're physically transported and emotionally, it's like magic. So I just think the world of, of novelists because I just, it's just such a gift. So anyway.
2: (laughs) Well, you are also an extremely talented writer too. And I think that, I think that you are. And I think those I think all of that comes out, you know, in, in our essays and things like that too. And that's why I think what you do is so incredible because you're giving people outlets for all of these different things that they're feeling. And it's really incredible. I mean, the anthology, like just to see all the different, you know, all the different essays and all the different things that all these different women were going through, but yet they're all so relatable. Like every single essay that you read, you're like, oh yeah, like I felt like that, or that's happened to me. or. So I really, I think it's incredible. I think it's a real gift to people to be able to pick up, you know, these anthologies and and especially during a time, you know, like I think the past year, I don't know about you, but well, no, I'm going to not say I don't know about you. You have had the attention span of like 30 people because you read so many books. But, you know, I think sometimes to pick up a book and like really commit to the whole book felt a little bit daunting. So to be able to pick up, you know, the anthology and read, a complete beautiful thing in just a few minutes, and then pick it up again and do the same thing. We didn't have to have a long attention span, so it was really good. A quarantine anthology was pretty genius. So <laughs> oh,
0: thank you, thank you. But no, this is about you and your book and your process. <laughs> and we have—I mean, it's your anthology, but I mean,
2: I—I I, I got to write something for the next one, so I'm pretty excited about it.
0: <laughs> you should I mean I loved your essay oh my gosh it was so good it was, was really planning good. on writing
2: it was not what I was planning on writing but you just never know what's going to happen so
0: you never know did you always know you wanted to write
2: no actually which is kind of interesting so I actually really liked science when I was in school like growing up and I thought maybe I would do something in that field and I do think especially in this book like you see a little bit of that just in I'm not going to say you see a little bit of that, but like I knew a lot about what I was writing about because I had covered these science beats in college and like had done a lot of you know, interviews and read a lot of studies about, you know, all the updates, all the things that were happening with IVF and, you know, things like that. So I felt like I had a lot of kind of like the background knowledge that I needed to be able to kind of at least start the book and then, you know, fact check it later kind of thing. But yeah, I thought I would do something in science. And then when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and I got an internship at my local newspaper. And I said this on Better Connecticut this morning, and they were like, this is not real. And I was like, yes, it is. My first article was about a giant squash that someone had grown in their garden, and it looked like Elvis. Like it had like the face of Elvis on it. (laughs) And I was like, No, I mean, if you live in a small southern town, like you will read about something like this in your newspaper. So that was my first article, my foray into journalism, but and it was so silly. It was like the silliest thing. But I started writing this garden game series for the newspaper. And I would write about, you know, these silly things that people grew in their gardens, but I was also writing about their lives and their families. And I was just so struck by the idea that everyone had a story. And so it led me to go to journalism school, but I always swore the whole time I was there that I was going to tell real stories. People would say, oh, you're a writer. Are you going to write a novel? And I would always say, I don't really think so. And I kind of had in the back of my mind that like, maybe I'll write a book. Maybe I'll try to write a book. Because I mean, who you knows? you know, you don't know you can do it, I think, until you do it. But I, th- I would think like, well, maybe I'll try to write a book one day just because I think that'd be like a cool bucket list thing, not to get published or anything like that, just to like, I did this, like go me, you know, (laughs) but it wasn't something that was like part of my plan. But you know, I just think things continue to evolve. So I got a master's in literature, just because I wanted to read, I was like, I've written for four years, I'm gonna go read for two years. And so I did. And that was fantastic. And then I went and worked in finance and kind of missed writing while I was doing that and started getting all these story ideas. And I sat down and started writing and actually wrote three well, I guess I wrote, yeah, I wrote three complete manuscripts before I tried to get an, an agent and then signed with an agent and actually ended up not selling the book that I signed with the agent for. And then in the meantime, winning a writing contest for Dear Carolina and getting a contract at Berkeley for that one. So it, I'm making it sound, you know, you know, like I'm making it sound like this short story is mm-hmm. very long and twisty and emotional and took years and I don't know that, you know, there was a, there were a lot of rejection letters, you know, I I still have them in folders. And every now and then, if I'm like, this is really hard, I'm tired. I'm like, go back and look at those rejection letters. And like, remember how far you've come, you know, because it is, it's, I don't think anyone gets here without a lot of effort. I mean, I guess maybe some people do, but I think most everyone has experienced that feeling of having to really work hard to get where they are and it, it's not It's not a job that comes super easily, I don't think, for most people.
0: No, I agree. And, I mean, it seems to me you have to write at, at least a couple novels before you have any hope of selling any of them. Like, it's. people should just know that starting out. Like, yeah. don't even try. You'll think it's amazing, and you'll pour your heart into it, but that is your first one. And, like, just get it. You have to do it to get to the fourth one or the fifth one but like, that's going to be your practice book.
2: No, that's such a good point. And I think my like saving grace and all of that was that, and this is still my process. So when I'm writing something about two thirds of the way through, or even like half of the way through, I'll start to get another idea that I think is the best idea I've ever had. And it's so much better than the idea I'm working on now. And, (laughs) oh my gosh, like, what am I doing with this? silly little book because this one is just brilliant. You know, like your next idea is always your best idea. Right. And so I'll kind of start writing. And so I think my, my real saving grace was that Like by the time I was finished with my first manuscript, I was about a third of the way through my second one. And I knew how much better it was. And by the time I was, I was finished with my second, I was about a third of the way through my third. And I knew how much better it was. And I do think by that third one, I think you have to find your voice a little bit. I think that takes some time. You can't just, you know, and maybe, and and I don't know, and maybe it comes with age too. I mean, I was young, like I was, you know, in my mid twenties, like starting all of this. And so I do think finding your voice, like takes time and maybe learning a little bit more about who you are, not to say there are plenty of like 20 year olds who write brilliant, beautiful things. So, but for me, it just, it took practice to be able to find like who I am on the page and what I want to say. And so there's
0: definitely something to that, I think. I think you're right. You know, one last thing about the book I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting was the feelings of loss that everybody had, particularly Amelia, when Greer passed away as like a big deal Instagram person, because that is only just now sort of happening more and more. Whereas before you didn't like know the ins and outs of people's lives quite as intimately. And I don't feel like you could know them as well as you do now, particularly someone like Greer who had written her own books and had like 2 million followers and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I just found that to be also really interesting because you can mourn the loss of someone you don't even really know yourself. And that also counts as loss and grief. And I feel like a lot of people are going through that right now in in many ways. Oh, it's so true. You, you're such a good interviewer.
2: I have said so many things tonight that I have not said in the like 10 million times I've talked about this book. So thank you for hitting on all these things. But yes, I think that is such a cultural phenomenon right now where, I mean, I think you're a really good example of that. Like I've met you one time super briefly at East Hampton Authors Night, but I've feel like I really know you, you know, because I follow you and I know what you're doing and I know what your kids are up to. And I know when your son's time for boarding <laughs> school. I mean, so like it's a real thing. And like I listen to your interviews. And I mean I I do think that people, you know, we feel connections with people that we don't really know. And so you know, I understand it. Like when someone will come up to me at a signing and they'll be like, no, but like, I know you. And I'm like, well, yeah, because like I talk about myself all the time online. So you you do know me, you really do. But I do think that we feel attached to people in these ways. And especially, you know, I think Greer was someone who, you know, in this story, we we do find out. And I, I worked really hard in making it so that we knew she wasn't a saint because I think when someone dies and they're young and it's um, kind of tragic, that we do tend to saint them and that would have been a really hard road in the story. She could not be so perfect. And I think her journal injuries do sort of serve the purpose of making it. So she's not quite as such a saint in the story, but you know, she is someone that is like really trying to do good for the world. In addition to like, just being cool. And like, people want to know her. you know. So I do think that that we do feel those losses of people. And we feel like we know them, we feel like we're a part of their lives and their stories. And, you know, we root for them. And it's kind of cool. Honestly, I think people tend to talk about like, you know, the negative parts of like these online communities, and oh, people can just say anything and da da da. And that's true. But also, I think it's given us really strong connections with people, especially during this time when we didn't have these real life connections anymore. So I think it's important. And it's funny that, you know, that wasn't something we weren't experiencing the pandemic when I started writing this book. But I think that is something that maybe we understand a little bit more even now than we did before, because we are so connected via social media
0: that's true I feel it's been a saving grace for so many people through this time when you couldn't be with people especially with everybody just spanning spanning out and hunkering down themselves you yeah. know, it used, you know this, it's just anyway I, I completely agree and I loved that you put that in so I could chat with you all day about this book and I really just honestly love it.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I am so grateful that you took the time to read it because I I almost like feel guilty because I'm like, I know how many, just so many books that you're reading all the time. And so I really, I do not take it for granted because I know how many books I'm reading all the time. And so sometimes when you're so overloaded and you 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 get to read one more but you're like can I fit it in like I just don't know
0: <laughs> so I totally understand it. it was a pleasure it was a pleasure I read most of it on the elliptical machine if it makes you feel any better so anyway.
2: <laughs> that's really good that's really good I miss yeah. I don't I miss my elliptical we're doing um, renovations at our house and I, I don't have my elliptical so I can't read and work out at the same time which is really unfortunate <laughs>
0: My gym gym just opened in my building after like a year. So I'm like very excited. I'm sure I'll stop going in another week. But you know, for now, I got to read your book. For now. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you
2: for having me. It was awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing, and thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.
1: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig,